Ephesians chapter six, verses one to four. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise, that it may go well with you, and that you may enjoy long life on the earth. Fathers, do not exasperate your children. Instead, bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Would you join me in prayer? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we've heard your word. We believe this is you addressing us, God. Even though it was first addressed to a people, a culture, many, many centuries ago, there's a living quality to it, God. And so we pray through your Holy Spirit that you would speak and instruct, guide, comfort, convict, meet us exactly where we need to be met by your life-giving word. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. I don't know if you've heard of this a small town in Pennsylvania called Rosetto. Um, an author, Malcolm Gladwell, wrote about what was a major health mystery in that town that researchers were trying to figure out in the 1950s. In Rosetto, virtually no one under 55 died of a heart attack. Um, no signs of heart disease among that population. And this was in a time where there were not the cholesterol-reducing medical assistance that were available. And many people were dying young of heart disease, heart attacks. In Rosetto, for men over 65, the death rate from heart disease was roughly half that in the broader United States. The death rate in Rosetto, from all causes, was 30 to 35% less than the rest of the United States. There were no suicides, researchers found. There was no alcoholism. There was no drug addiction. There was minimal crime. They didn't even have anyone on welfare in Rosetto. These people were dying of old age. That's it. And the researchers were mystified about this. What is going on? What, what are these people doing well that we need to learn from? So researchers systematically studied that town and its population, and they eliminated all sorts of different factors. Diet, nope, not that. Exercise, nope, they do that. Genetics, nope. Environmental conditions. They weeded out all these factors. And the reason that they concluded in the end that was that the mystery of Rosetto's well-being was the social context of the town itself. They looked at how the citizens treated one another, how they visited one another, how they stopped in to chat and would enjoy conversations, how they would cook for one another in their own backyards. In Rosetto, the love and the care people had for one another had this astounding beneficial effect on people's health. It generated this profound social well-being. It was a little taste of God's kingdom, a sign of the power of restored relationships. Because when our primary relationships are healthy and whole and holy, relationships with our parents, with our families, with our neighbors, it's like there's this spillover effect into our communities, which are then more likely to be healthy and flourish themselves. 
themselves. Paul, in the book of Ephesians, is proclaiming the profound effect of the good news, and he would probably use Rossetto as a case study of how this, this is a taste for what the impact of the gospel would look like because it is intended to promote flourishing relationships that spill over into healthy communities. Paul, in the passage we've been looking at, Ephesians 5, he begins in verse 21. We're now in chapter 6. He is looking at how our primary relationships are made whole. What Paul is doing here in Ephesians at that time it was a pretty revolutionary thing because he is turning, he's taking first century relationships, first century understanding of human relationships, and he's, he's pretty much turning it on its head. He is upending the established order for how people understood these things. All in the name of this is what a spirit-filled life is about. You remember, that is the critical piece. Paul says, be filled with the spirit. And then he talks about these consequences that happen. And part of the consequences that happen now are in our social relationships, human relationships. They get reordered. They get transformed. Now, because of sin, human relationships are still distorted still exploited, still twisted, still not aligned with God's good designs. And you know that's still going on. That's still going on, and so people need to protest. Yesterday, across the world, um, there was this women's protest. And I don't, uh, I don't know what political stripe you are on. That really doesn't matter, because part of the good that was going on in those marches was, was a desire and a hope for human relationship to rise above fear and intimidation. It was an affirmation that God's design for human relationships is for all people, no matter who they are, that their image of God should be affirmed and blessed. But that's not the way it is in our world. And so we need to protest. And so we need the gospel. Jesus Christ enters this world of broken relationships. And through his spirit, he begins to untangle and restore those broken relationships. Because Jesus, Jesus alone makes things great again. And in this section, Paul is working with what people in that culture call the household code. Many philosophers of the day would sort of publish or put out their own household code. It would be a list of activities or behaviors that you would expect in core relationships. Um, in the first century, these household codes would spell out what would be expected in three relational spheres. Husband and wife, father and child, and then master and servant. That is Paul, what Paul is working through here. And in most cases, husband father, master are the same person. Because often the home was a workplace where servants and masters would work together. So it was a place not only of home, of relationship, but also work. But now when the Holy Spirit comes and when the Holy Spirit fills humans with God's life, the dynamics of those relationships change. There's a new household cold, which is what Paul is outlining here. In that first century context, women, children, servants were treated relatively similarly. They were in service to the father, to the husband, to the master. The husband, father, and master was the one in that culture who was considered truly, fully human. That was the cultural 
context of the day. And it led to the development of certain classes, certain stratifications of relationships where one class would rule another. So masters would rule slaves, males, females, father rules the child. And that's just how relationships were. That's the way they functioned in that culture. That's just the way it was. But that is not the way God created things. And for us to understand whole and healthy relationships, to understand what Paul is doing here too, we need to step back and we need to think again about how God created human beings. When God created human beings, he created us with his image. We are imprinted with the image of God. And Andy Crouch, in, in a wonderful book called Strong and Weak, talks about what that image is like, how we are created in God's image, both with authority and with vulnerability. Both God models to us. Both authority and vulnerability are part of God's image in us. And the exercise of both those things are critical to being fully human. Humans are created first with this authority, with this remarkable power to act, to shape, to influence the world. The psalmist in Psalm 8, um, when he considers God's creation, of the whole creation and then of the human being, is just stunned. And he says this, you have made them, human beings, a little lower than the angels. You've crowned them with glory. You've made them rulers over the works of your hands. You have put everything under their feet. We have this remarkable authority, this power that is a gift. And it's given to us not to benefit ourselves. It is a gift given for the flourishing of other individuals, other peoples, um, the world itself. And the right use of power of that authority is especially important for the flourishing of, of the vulnerable of members of the human family who need others to use their power well to survive and thrive. The young, the aged, the sick, the marginalized. Power is not the opposite of servanthood. Those two are not opposites. They are actually come together because uh, servanthood ensures the flourishing of others. It's the very purpose of power. So, we have this authority, we have this power, God created us. But at the same time, God created us, humans, with vulnerability. Think of how a human, when they're born, is so utterly vulnerable and dependent. Every other creature that God has created is born, every animal that's created is born, and within a few hours or a few days is fairly self-reliant, is able to, to uh, locate food for themselves, eat on their own, walk, provide for themselves. But a human being is born so vulnerable, and it takes so much time for us to grow into full independence. A child remains dependent, a teenager, uh, sometimes these days, even into their 20s and 30s, people still remain dependent on their, children, on their parents. Uh, but we're, we're just vulnerable, dependent beings. And in the history of human relationships, that pair of vulnerability and authority, that image of God in us, has been distorted and often exploited. People might function with all authority and no vulnerability, or people are left to function with no authority and all vulnerability. 
And so human relationships get deformed so that the vulnerable women, children, master, uh, servants are being exploited, uh, being used by those who are privileged with power, mostly males. But that's just the way the world works, right? That's just how relationships function. That's just the way it is. But not so with Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ enters that world of broken, twisted, disordered relationships and, and that status quo, that the way it is, and he turns it upside down. The gospel of Jesus Christ changes everything, including all the dynamics of human relationships. So Paul is reframing human relationships here around that central dynamic of God's self-giving love. In Jesus Christ, we see the gift of God. Jesus is giving himself fully. Jesus, who is all authority, gives himself and becomes all vulnerability, even to death on a cross. And Paul sees the wonder of that and, and then begins to imagine and reframe all our human relationships around that gospel dynamic, that core reality of Jesus the last two weeks, we looked at how this has been worked out in, in marital relationships. And today, we're going to explore quickly how that, what that means in families, in the, in the very up-close and personal, intimate relationships of parents and children. And again, this really impacts all of us, right? Because unless you're hatched, um, this is you. You've been born into a family, into parents, Every one of us have been born to parents, and the relationship that we have with parents is so formative, so powerful in our lives. Um, even if you have had parents that are, have died, that are gone, that relationship still has, has a powerful influence in your living today. We can, we can live out of the capital of goodness that parents have invested in our lives and still reap the benefits of that today, or we can be reacting to our parents we, because we haven't come to terms with that relationship, uh, we find ourselves stuck and unable to move forward freely in other areas of our lives. And the good news of the gospel of Jesus is that it provides healing for those of us in these most intimate relationships. It provides hope for parents who feel like they've just blown it with their kids. It provides help and healing for children who struggle in their relationship with their parents. So how does that core dynamic uh, of life in this spirit, of being subject to one another, submitting to one another, how does that play out in family relationships? Paul says, children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. In the reality of human reproduction, vulnerable children are born into families where someone has to exercise authority for their flourishing. By nature, by creation, by God's design, parents are invested with that authority, with the power for the flourishing of their very vulnerable children. So parents, own that authority. You have been given that authority to exercise on behalf of your children, to cause, to promote their flourishing. Too much conventional wisdom about parenting can feel like an abdication of that role, of that authority. Too many parents shy away from the challenges of exercising a legitimate and a real power in their child's life. We're such a, a low authority culture 
that any exercise of authority seems to smack of coercion or, or abuse. And I know parental authority has been used in those ways, but the solution to that is not abdication. Parents who abdicate that God-given authority cause suffering. They impoverish their children. So if you've been entrusted with a child through birth, through adoption, you're granted an authority, a God-given authority to exercise, to serve the flourishing of your child. And that's a challenging role. Oh my goodness, I know the, uh, the challenges of that. The process of parenting continues to be probably the hardest, the most haunting, and the holiest of experiences of my life. But Christ calls us to, to, to assume that, to take that power that we are invested with and, and to learn how parents, how we are subject to our children. To take our power and to put it in service of our children. And in the context of that relationship, Paul says a child's call is to obey their parents. Now Paul is primarily talking to young children with that initial thing, non-adult children initially. Paul would say, young children, without a lot of qualification, obey your parents. It's going to go well with you. But as we grow, as we mature, uh, the commandment to obey parents shifts. It becomes relativized of sorts. And we under, as we understand more of God's will for our lives, and as we grow, we still have an obligation to our parents. But Paul now quotes the fifth commandment, sort of expanding. He says, honor your father and mother. Now, I know that for many of us, relationships with parents can be complicated, can be strained sometimes, can be really challenging. And for some of us, we have wrestled, we have wondered, how do I do this? Well, it's really important, I think, to remember what the fifth commandment does not call us to do. It does not say, love your parents. It does not say, trust your parents. It does not say, admire and enjoy your parents. I hope those things will happen in your relationship with your parents, but those are not commanded dispositions towards our parents. To say, love your parents in the sense of your parent having the affections of your heart would be sometimes impossible in certain situations because some parents have harmed their children. You can't. It's just impossible to give that affection of your heart. It doesn't command us to trust our parents because some parents have been unstable. They have proven themselves not trustworthy. To trust them would, would be foolish and wrong. It doesn't say admire your parents because in some cases it, that's impossible without actually denying the truth because some parents have not acted admirably. But the one thing it does say to do is to honor your father and your mother. No matter who you are, no matter what circumstance, no matter who your parents are, no matter what personality type you are, every child is called to honor their parents. And we need to distinguish that from all those other pieces that I've just talked about. Now, what does it mean to honor our parents or parental figures we have in our lives? The word Paul uses here is um, literally to, to be heavy, to be weighty. So in the context of honoring, it means we give to our parents a certain gravity. We take that relationship seriously, not lightly. 
We give significance and priority to that relationship. We prize our parents. We, we attach a value, a worth to them. Honor is a decision to treat your parents with dignity, with courtesy. It's a decision to provide a long-term loyalty to their best interests. And part of what it means to honor parents if you've had a bad relationship with them, is to take a step in coming to terms with that difficult relationship, even if your parents have died. And that might be by inviting Jesus into the presence of that relationship. It might be by beginning to process that relationship with a, a pastor, a close friend, a counselor. But part of this is, is just dealing with some of the brokenness of a relationship. You honor your parents by doing that. Another part of honoring our parents is by forgiving them. By forgiving them. It is recognizing that they are imperfect. That they are broken human beings. And while maybe they have had good intentions, they unintentionally harmed and hurt. And you felt it and you experienced it. And you just need to recognize they're broken people. Many of our relationships are, are sour because our parents were maybe harsh, because maybe they had problems. Maybe the marriage broke up, or it was just difficult and tense, and you lived with that, and, and you, you just got bitter towards them because of it. You felt like you couldn't trust them when you needed someone to trust. And in forgiving them, you just recognize they are broken just as you are. How else can we honor our parents? I think we honor our parents by finding culturally appropriate ways of doing that. We're, we're a people of different cultures. And if you talk to people in different cultures, there's different standards for how we honor our parents. I think we need to actually talk to one another and say, how do you do it in your culture? Here's how we do it in mine. Um, and then learn from another. Go to school uh, on that. Because there are all sorts of ways for us to show honor to our parents. I think it just means... Remembering birthdays, calling them when you don't feel like it. And it's interesting, as our parents age, we can honor them in very practical ways. As our parents age, we as children become a little more powerful or a little more strong in that relationship. And though the authority might change, perhaps it's the parent's vulnerability that increases. And we, in that relationship, as we submit to them out of reverence for Christ... We might actually serve them in a new way. And actually, that moment can be a healing moment for a lot of people who have had a strained relationship with their parents. As they honor them, as their parents grow older and weaker, a, a compassion towards them is called out. A, a new, fresh sense of mercy. It's remarkable how that can happen. We just honor them in their senior years. But what about parents? Parents. Parents, let's talk to you. Paul addresses you too. How do parents submit to their children? Because this is what Paul is talking about, this mutual submission. How does a parent submit, subject themselves to their children? Paul writes, fathers, inclusive fathers and mothers, do not exasperate your children. Instead, bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. Paul's calling parents not to provoke their children to anger. Think of this. It is possible to create in our children a settled disposition of anger, a disposition of, of just being frustrated and resentful 
It is very possible because of our parenting to raise angry children. And that doesn't mean, you know, that children will, you know, occasionally get angry at you because of some limitations that you're placing on them. Um, But if we're not submitting ourselves to our children, not using our authority to serve them, it can create the settled disposition of frustration, of resentment. Now, what can create that? One way you can create that resentful, frustrated, angry kid is to be unbalanced. If you over-discipline, if you only use discipline, if, or if it's all authority, if you have too many rules, if you're only exercising authority without any sense of vulnerability, you're forgetting. Your kid is human. She is in the image of God. He's not a dog or a cat to be trained. This is a human, precious life. On the other hand, if you only reason with your child, if you only dialogue and talk and persuade and, and defer to them, you're going to frustrate them just as much as you would if the other way, because you're forgetting they're not yet adults. You're asking of them of something that is not yet developmentally appropriate. If you overdevelop, uh, if you overdiscipline, you're, you're forgetting they're humans. But if you underdiscipline, if you always try to coax and talk and let them run things, you're forgetting they're not adults yet. Another way this can happen is when parents place on their children so many of their hopes and dreams and aspirations. And this is probably a big one for most parents. It happens all the time when, when a parent places upon their children a burden of expectation, you know, to, to turn out just right, to do well in school, to, to, to be polite, to be well-adjusted, to, to have friends, to be popular, to be athletic, to become a doctor or a lawyer or an architect. For so many parents, we can impose on our kids our hopes and really our own emotional needs. What we're doing, we're trying to fill our heart by drawing some referred glory of our children into us. Our ego needs them to succeed somehow. And children, oh, they got a radar for this. They can feel it. They can sense it. They can feel how impossible it is to fulfill those expectations. And it leads them to get angry because they're faced in an impossible situation of trying to provide for you what a child should never have to provide for a parent. You're asking your child to do what only God can do for you. It's an impossible burden for a kid to carry. No wonder a kid might rebel or get angry. Let me rephrase it another way. All of us, every human being, is is built to know family love. And that family love is this unconditional love and acceptance. It's a love that you can you can just be absolutely sure of, no matter what you've done. And in a high percentage of families, parents, they find it really difficult to give that love. It's a qualified, it's a conditional love we provide. And and we, we try to provide unconditional love, but here's how it comes up. It comes out as you haven't measured up. You've disappointed. You haven't gotten the career we wanted. You haven't married the person we hoped for. Oh, man, I think of that. It makes me want to repent as a dad constantly. I wonder how have I communicated that message to my kids. 
and kids have been looking to their parents. So this runs both ways. Kids have been looking to their parents for this same sort of unconditional love. They've wanted it so badly. And, and your parents, speaking to you all as children, your parents in many cases were not able to give that to you. And therefore you've come to the conclusion that somehow you're not lovable. That you're, and so you're driven by a need to somehow prove yourself. Because here's the truth, your parents could never, ever provide that sort of love for your heart. Here's what the gospel provides. Here's the secret of the gospel that it provides whole relationships in families among parents and children. To both parents and children, the only way we are going to be able to really honor one another, parents honoring, submitting to children, children honoring, obeying their parents, the only way we're going to be do that is when we are free to disappoint them. When we're free to displease them. Seriously. The way to be free is to displease them. It, it, it's because what we're doing is we turn our hearts to God and we go get from God what we've always wanted from our parents or what we seek to find in our, uh, the love of our children. And we stop blaming them for not being able to be God to us. We look to God, to his love to fill and satisfy us. The day we stop letting your parents or your, your children be God in your life is the day you're finally able to honor and forgive and serve your parents, serve your children. And the Bible says the only place we get that that sort of family love is in Jesus Christ. Jesus, who, who embodies perfect authority and perfect vulnerability. Look at Jesus. Jesus, who again, who was all authority and yet became for us all vulnerability, dying on a cross. That, friends, is the new power. That is the dynamic we remember and we live out in our relationships. That is the dynamic we participate in these relationships. This vulnerability of Jesus, this sacrificial service of others, and in so doing, we are participating in the full authority that Jesus has given to us. Let's pray. Glory to you, God. Glory to you. For you are filled with authority, filled with sacrificial love, filled with this radical vulnerability. We praise you, God, that this is who you are. Thank you, Lord. We bless you. This is, this is your character. This is your story. This is our story, God. We are your people. And so this is our story. You've given us a new creation, God, in Jesus Christ. The old is gone. The new has come. You have sent us in this world to be fully restored image bearers of you, to live a new way in all our relationships, to meet hate with love, to give dignity and honor to all. God, you commission us for this. We pledge to be your people, people who will die with Christ but rise to his new life. We will do this, God. If you would come and fill us with your Holy Spirit, empower us to live these radical new relationships. In all our honoring of one another, may we be a bright, beautiful witness for Christ. In his name we pray. Amen.